0: Friends, let's pray together, and we will study the word this morning. Gracious God, in this new year, we thank you for this good opportunity. We ask, as always, that you help us do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. So the question I have for you this morning is, who exactly is in charge? It's one of the earliest developmental questions that many of us ask, even if we don't realize it. We walk into a room and we want to know immediately who is responsible for what's going on here. And sometimes the answer is incredibly obvious. The person who is in charge it is the host. They're the master of ceremonies. They're the one with the itinerary or the starting pistol. Sometimes when you go to holiday family gatherings, the lines of authority get a little bit blurry between the generations. And there are other times when it turns out that we are actually the person in charge, the person that dictates what's going to happen and when. All of which is very well and good up to the point that we recognize that at the end of the day, none of us, not a single one of us on this side of glory is actually in charge. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark wastes no time setting the record straight and helping everyone to see right away that Jesus is not an ordinary leader. He is the King of Kings. He is the ultimate authority for everything that is going to happen. In Mark 21, we're going to pick up on the story that we started last week. It's the story where Jesus gets down to business in his role as the one who is the Messiah, the Savior. Remember last week, Jesus was baptized, he was tempted, he gets his first followers, and now he's going to begin his teaching. All of this happens in the first chapter of Mark. They went to Capernaum, says Mark, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Immediately, Mark tells us that the people know that there's something a little bit different about Jesus and his teaching. This is not quite what they're used to, and it's very much more than a style issue. Mark records that that Jesus does does not teach the way that the scribes teach. And there's a good reason for that. Because the scribes would have taught from a historical teaching perspective of what they knew and what they had studied, what they had learned... They would have been incomplete in their teaching because like all scholars, they would have focused in on particular areas while giving lesser attention to other things. Some may have been interested in, in straight religious texts and others may have preferred theology. And while all of them would have had some broad-based knowledge of the general subject of God, none of them would have been able to speak with the authority in which Jesus spoke. They spoke of tradition. Jesus presented his confident interpretation of what was happening. So why is that? Because the others were all scholars of God. I am a scholar of God. Pastor Song is a scholar of God. Pastor Reed is a scholar of God. Technically, everyone in this room is a scholar of God. But Jesus is God. So when he taught, he could speak with absolute 100% confidence that he was in charge and that what he said was accurate and certain. Now, although this was news to the people in the synagogue, it should not come as a surprise to us here in 2016. Mark makes it clear that Jesus is the son of God right away. He is the one with whom God is well pleased and that the spirit of God already dwells within him. No wonder he speaks with such authority unlike the other scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with with unclean spirit and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So while all the people who are there for the teaching are just starting to notice that there's a little difference, turns out to be a big difference between Jesus and the scribes, which they're accustomed to, it's the demon inside of the man in the synagogue who recognizes the authority of Jesus immediately. And friends, he was afraid. He was afraid because Jesus is the enemy of evil. Now, why would evil... Be afraid of Jesus. Well, today we're talking about authority. And evil loves to have authority. And so it thrives on the fear of others. One of the quickest ways to get control of the room is to incite fear. So I want you to consider something like one of the movie theater shootings. We all identify that as a horrifying, evil event. But consider some of the power issues that drive such things. The person with the gun instantly becomes the authority in the room, and it's not because they deserve it. It's not because they've done anything special. It is because all of a sudden they have captured an entire room with fear. The problem that evil encounters when it comes face-to-face with Jesus is that Jesus is not afraid. Jesus is not afraid, and evil loses its power in the face of those who are unafraid. This is why all the power and authority structures that we set up all over the world fail when it comes to the authority and power of Jesus. A lot of times, the world structures operate out of a place of fear, not out of a place of truth, where Jesus comes from. The demon inside of the man could see that this was a fact, and he knew what was coming and was positive, rightly so. That he did not stand a chance. So that's why you hear that fear in the voice of the man. Why have you come here? Are you going to destroy us? He already knows the answer to that. Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit throwing him into convulsions and crying with a loud voice came out of him. Understand this. We all have demons. We all have things that we carry and there is always going to be a struggle for power and authority in our lives. The demon didn't just see Jesus coming and say, "Oh, well, I'll just walk away quietly." There was convulsions and crying, there was wrestling to be done. But that unclean spirit knew that even all of that was just going to be a last gasp attempt to remain in power. An attempt that we know is a complete and total failure, but he decided he didn't want to go down without a fight. Let's be clear: that spirit finally did go, and there was no discussion or dis- or dissension about the idea that there is a new sheriff in town. The real enemy of chaos and sin is Jesus. Well, they were all amazed, and they kept asking one another, "What is this? A new teaching with authority?" He commands even the unclean spirits to obey him. And at once, his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. At the conclusion of this passage, the people are just they are just starting. They're just starting to get a glimpse of what the authority of Jesus is going to look like and how it's going to manifest itself. And at first, based on this story alone it would appear that this whole Jesus thing is going to turn out pretty sweet for the people. Until they and we have to wrestle with Jesus' authority in our own lives. It's very very easy for us to see Jesus' authority in other people's lives because clearly other people need Jesus' authority. But not, not us. I mean, we're good people. So there's some wrestling that has to be done with that. And until they and we have wrestled with Jesus' authority in our own lives, we will not fully be able to claim that he is the Lord and Savior. When we read the story of Jesus overcoming the unclean spirit, we come at that story from a distance. We look in at it from the outside, and we might stand on the sidelines and cheer for Jesus' authority over what we consider as a behavior or activity that doesn't bring glory to God. But is it possible to say that Jesus only has authority over others? Particularly the others that, that we don't happen to agree with or approve of? Well, I think that depends on where you live and what you do. In the state of Maryland and many other states, You cannot have a cell phone in your hand while driving. Whether that cell phone is on or off is irrelevant. You cannot have it in your hand. Not for talking, not for texting, not for doing your laundry, not for searching the internet. There is no phone, period. That's the law. Well, that's not the law here in Florida, though. However, if you are a Floridian who chooses to visit Maryland then guess what? You must abide by the laws in the state of Maryland. If you are someone who simply is incapable of driving without a cell phone in your hand, Maryland is not going to be the place for you. By the way, regardless of which state you live in, you don't get to pick and choose which laws you happen to obey and which ones you don't. It's really an all-or-nothing proposition. Those who follow Jesus, they also make a choice about where they live. They choose to live in the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And in the kingdom of heaven, there is one authority, only one. It is Jesus Christ. He's in charge. It's not a democracy. There are laws. Some of those laws you might not agree with. However, By choosing to live in the kingdom of heaven on earth, you make the choice to abide by those laws. Well, that goes against everything. Every instinct that we have as free people. People who like to be in charge. People who like to be considered authorities. But the laws of God are not arbitrary, unlike that Washington, D.C. law that tells you where you can and cannot park your goat. The laws of God, they're rooted in a heart of love for all of God's people. God has a vision for your life. And that that vision is not that you're just going to survive whatever this thing is on this side of glory, but that you're going to thrive, that you're going to grow, that you're going to experience joy and love, and that you're going to celebrate and hope. These are all things that God wants for you. And the laws that God gives us are meant to give us that life that God envisions and wants for us. When we submit to the authority of God, we unleash a whole new sense of freedom that comes from knowing that we're not in charge and that the weight of the world does not rest on our shoulders. Aside from the law, the teaching of Jesus reveals to us the authoritative guidance and direction for our lives. So take, for example, when Jesus talks about loving your neighbors. That seems to be one that everybody knows. Jesus said, love your neighbors. And instinctively, throughout the generations, we want to pick apart this whole, well, who who exactly is my neighbor? I mean, technically speaking, what, what constitutes my neighbor? Because I kind of like the guy that lives to the left of me, but the lady three houses down is super annoying. Is is she really my neighbor? And the reason that we do that is because we know that we're under the authority of God. We don't get to pick our neighbors necessarily because we're not talking about just your physical who lives next door to you. So what we do when we ask questions like that is, is that we're trying to eke out a little bit of control in a situation that we don't have a lot of control over. And we also know that under the teaching of Christ, neighbors is a very broad word. A very, very broad word. If you follow Jesus, if you recognize his authority, then you love your neighbor, period. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Chances are, if you're asking, is this person my neighbor? The answer is Yes. Yes, they are. It is that simple, and it's that complicated. But here's a question for you. What happens if you go about loving your neighbor, and it turns out that your neighbor is a total jerk? Why doesn't your neighbor have to love you, especially because you're such an amazing person? Again, it comes back to choice. Nobody is going to force you to follow Jesus, to recognize his authority and power. But here's the deal. Nobody's going to force your neighbor to do that either. If you make the choice to follow Jesus and to recognize his authority in your life, then you're going to strive to live your life in a way that falls under that authority, even if your neighbor makes a different choice. That's going to be true for us as a church as well. A few years back as a church, we voted unanimously to affirm about eight different statements of what we believe and what we practice here in the life of this church. The first two of those statements are that Jesus Christ alone is Lord and Savior. So what that means is that we claim and proclaim the authority of Jesus Christ in our lives. And that means that he sets the tone, the vision, the mission, the ministry and work of this congregation. Not me, not the elders, not the choir or the worship team, not even the members. Jesus runs this place. He's in charge of what's going to happen around here. So if it matters to Jesus, it needs to matter to us. And if it bothers Jesus, it needs to bother us. And we use the word alone in our statement because we commit ourselves to following Jesus and not going on tangents when the world decides to walk away from Jesus. Jesus never abdicated his authority, so it turns out that he's still the ruler of all. The second belief that we hold is that the Bible is the unique and authoritative word of God. Since we find ourselves in a time of waiting for the return of Christ, our key reference to knowing Jesus, to submitting ourselves to his power and his authority comes from the Bible. And so that's why week after week, we go back to the Bible again and again to learn and to remind ourselves of what we've committed to, what we believe in when, when we chose to follow Jesus and to be under his authority. Now, a lot of people interpret the Bible as a whole rule book. This whole list of do's and don'ts. But I'm kind of with N.T. Wright. He's He's a biblical scholar, scribe, not Jesus, who says that the whole Bible speaks to the authority of Jesus. So if you want to get into authority issues with the Bible, what you want to look at is how the Bible witnesses to the authority of Jesus. The Bible is the clearest resource that we have for establishing the authority and power of Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so when we're engaged in the word on a regular basis, we're able to remind ourselves of what it is that we believe about Jesus and his power in the world, which is all well and good until you get to those parts that that maybe you're not so cool with, those parts about loving the poor. And doing ministry among them. The parts about tithing and giving. The parts that say that, that we're supposed to love the unlovable. The parts that make us antsy. And, and a, little, a little nervous and anxious. See, that's all. That's all under Jesus' authority. So here we are on the third day of 2016. And there's a whole lot that we just don't know about this year. There's a great many things that we don't know yet. It could be that this is the best year yet. It could be that this is going to be the worst. It could be that this is a year of great momentum and joy. But it could also be that this is a year of, of reflectiveness and thoughtfulness. It could be. All of the potential and possibility that this new year brings with it, and all that we can say from this moment is, it could be. But there is one thing that we can do today, do right now, that will set the tone for the entire rest of the year. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to invite you, either right now or or after church, to once again claim or reclaim the authority of Jesus Christ in your life. I'm asking you, I'm asking you to surrender the control of this year over to the Lord. Now let me just tell you straight up, that doesn't guarantee that you're going to have a perfect year. It's not a guarantee that you're going to have an easy year. But what it will give you is a tremendous freedom to embrace this year with all of its joys and all of its imperfections, knowing that you're not in control giving you the space, and I love this, it gives you the space to follow and be surprised by God. And the promise and assurance of grace when you stumble or if this world pushes you around a little bit. So like the unclean spirit evicted from the man by the authority of Jesus, just imagine what could be drawn out of us when Jesus becomes the authority in our lives And what kind of space gets created within us that can be filled with that surprise and joy of the Lord? Let me pray for us. Holy God, we confess that we like control. We like to be in charge. We like to be the ones in the know who want to know what's going on. Sometimes we even like it when we get to inform others of how in control we are. So we pray this year, Lord, that we would surrender our lives to you, that you would be the one who would be the authority and power over all that we do as a church, collectively and then also individually. We recognize that we can't do this alone, that we need your help. And so we ask for your spirit to come upon each one of us, that even now as we come forward in a time of communion, that that we would be strengthened by your word and sacrament. And be prepared to go out into the world as ones who live under the freedom of Christ. Willing to be surprised by joy and hope. In your name we pray. Amen.